We know that environmental health and human health are inextricably linked. So when we talk about sustainable agriculture and organic food on this show as the foundation for social and environmental justice, we also mean human health. Today, it is about human health for the most vulnerable of us, our children. Children's health, the consequences of industrial food production. That's our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. We're speaking with two doctors today who have made an assessment of the environmental impacts of pesticides and other chemicals in our food, part of their practice in their work of healing children. And with it, these two doctors have become experts in just how much the food we eat, or rather the food we feed our children, can make them sick. We're talking with them about their new book, What's Making Our Children Sick?, how industrial food is causing an epidemic of chronic illness, and what parents and doctors can do about it. All that and more coming up in just a minute here today on An Organic Conversation. I'm your host, Helge Helberg, and this show is made possible by Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Children's health, that's our topic, our focus in this hour of an organic conversation, the consequences of industrial food production. We are discussing a new book, What's Making Our Children Sick, How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness, and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. And with me are now Dr. Michelle Perrault and Dr. Vincent Adams, both from the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Um, do we have both of you on the line? Yes, Michelle Perrault here. And Vincent Adams here. Beautiful. Thank you for making the time and for your dedication to this topic of environmental impacts, in this case really agrochemicals, the industrial food complex, and the effect on particularly our children and our children's health. Michelle, I want to start with you. You're a pediatrician that includes the study of pesticides in your work now. And Vincent, you're a professor of medical anthropology, and you have written about social injustice, for example, in regard to the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Why do you both go far beyond what doctors usually do? Michelle, do you want to start with that? Absolutely. Uh, Hilga, my interest didn't start with this topic. I'm not a food activist by training. I'm a pediatric emergency physician, um, in ed educationally speaking, and that's where my love was and my passion um, however, about 20 years ago, uh, even even longer than that, I had some health challenges with my own son, which led me into the dreaded topic of homeopathy, which is uh, such a blight on Western medicine, but I had fabulous success with homeopathy, and I, and I later became a homeopath. But then what happened was I was introduced to the concept of pesticides through a local group of women who were trying to stop the spray along the entire coast of Northern California against the light brown apple moth. And these women needed a pediatrician, and they said, Hey, Michelle, how about you? And I didn't want to do it. I wasn't an activist. I was a busy mom and a busy practice and PTA and all the stuff in soccer and what have you. And 
I said, well, Michelle, put your money where your mouth is and just do it. And I did it. And truthfully, I didn't have to do much. They really needed my name. However, they had an MD. I got involved. And what I learned through those gals was, hey, Michelle, what do you think about GMOs? And I didn't have a thought about GMOs at the time. And they said, you need to read this book by Jeffrey Smith. And being a dutiful pediatrician and a smart one at that, I listened to moms when they tell me things. And I read that book. And through Jeffrey's book, Seeds of Deception, I learned about genetically modified food, research regarding it. I started digging in, and then light bulbs were popping off in my head, thinking, oh, my God, can this be related to the massive turnaround in children's health that I was happening to witness at the same time in my own practice. And that's how it all began. So it was a serendipitous culmination of different factors in the universe. I wouldn't say tapping me on the shoulder. I would say shoving me to point me in some things that I needed to do. So I feel very fortunate that I got somebody turned on the light for me. Yes, and so often that's a personal story, and I'm having a total homecoming moment here right now. I was uh, running Marin Organic, an organization dedicated to creating the first all-organic county in the country, which we successfully did uh, just north of San Francisco when the light brown apple moth topic came upon us. And before that, it was the gla glassy-winged sharpshooter while I was still with an organic certifier, California Certified Organic Farmers. So we have been working <laughs> in one way or another in the same trenches without really knowing of one another. Yeah. Um, beautiful. I want to get the question to Vincent, but you can just, can you say just one more sentence on the blithe of homeopathy? That really caught my attention, Michelle. Oh, oh dear. Um <laughs> Oh, gee. oh, dear. This this could be a three-hour conversation I'm over sure. a glass of uh, Cabernet. <laughs> but let me just say briefly that um, homeopathy, because it does not have the same scientific rigor of studies, although there are many, many studies, good studies on homeopathy, but not traditional double-blind placebo-controlled studies that Western docs like to see. And because the amounts of material used are in such minute ma minute amounts and nanoparticles, similar to the amounts that like hormones run in your body, by the way, that Western docs have been unwilling to sure. kind of wrap around that these medicines and their medicines are powerful and effective. And I've had great success over decades using them and looking at the research on it as well. So it, it ha we, you know, Vincent and I do talk about it in the book, what very briefly about why so many of these integrative therapies got booted out in the early 1900s. But um, it may be changing slightly, yes. but um, it's still under a lot of pressure. So I'll the blight is the scrutiny um, put upon that topic, unfortunately, because it can be a powerful remedy if you, or medicine if you use it. Um, and a very affordable one at that. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Vincent, how did you find your passion as a professor of medical anthropology How did you, where did the, the topic of social injustice really, that seems to be your path, um, tell us about that? Well, first of all, thank you for having us. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I thought that, you know, in listening to Michelle tell her story, that really my beginning with this book project was, first of all, I would say any academic who jumps into the world of GMO food really does so with a great deal of trepidation. And, and this was definitely true for me. When I met Michelle and heard her talk about her theories of GM foods and children's declining health, I was really intrigued, but I was also really skeptical. And as you know, uh, the scientific consensus in the U.S. maintains that you know, these foods are completely harmless. Um, and, and that's a huge problem. So while I was skeptical, I also recognized in, in listening to her tell her stories about the kind of medicine that she practiced and the issue of GM foods, that there were a lot of overlaps with my interests. For instance, I'd been writing about and teaching on the pitfalls of the biomedical model um, for decades. Um, that's what medical anthropologists are known for. Um, I'd published on alternative medical systems, especially those that believe food is a form of medicine in the Asian context. I had also written books on the ways that industrial and corporate arrangements have a negative impact on health, for example, in Global Health Projects and in the case of Hurricane Katrina, somewhat disparate projects. But initially I thought it would be really compelling to write a story about the field of integrative medicine, the, the type that Michelle practiced in relation to the rising problem of chronic disorders. And it was clear, you know, because it was clear that we're facing an epidemic. There are so many people who are sick and they're not getting the answers they needed from their doctors. But when it came to the questions of GM foods, I really didn't think at the initial stages of this 
jumping in, that that topic would be the one that I'd be the most compelled to write the book about. And and it does take up a significant part of the book. You know, and, and my intrigue came from the fact that the debate over the politics of the science in this area is just one of the more interesting I've ever seen. You know, and, and after jumping in and trying to read through the science and talking to the scientists who were involved, going to the workshops, shadowing Michelle in her practice, interviewing her with patients, and delving into the theories of pathology that she was working with, I decided that, you know, this would be a great thing to help Michelle bring this story uh, to the world. Uh, she had wanted to write a book. I was a writer. We had overlapping interests. And I said, we can do this. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, the book really is a book that links the crisis of the medical model and the rising rates of chronic disorders to the problem of industrial and biotech foods. And it just seemed like no one had been connecting the dots between those yes. things in the ways that needed to be connected so that's what got me involved. And I'm glad you, you, you did connect and we are all better for it. But where did your, your interest get sparked for social justice as part of a, a you know, doctor's study? Did you grow up in a household that was env environmentally focused or maybe not at all? And because of that, it was missing. What was your personal moment no, where you... Personal, yeah. yeah, my personal pathway to this world came really by way of the alternative medicine world. I spent 20 years working in the Tibetan medicine context, mm. in Tibet itself, looking at women's health and, and uh, safe motherhood programs and trying to uh, convey to a skeptical audience in the U.S. and the West that uh, much of what goes on in Asian medical systems is really valuable. Oh, beautiful. And, of course, food takes a huge, uh, plays a huge role in their medical model. Um, so that's where it started. But, of course, you know, being an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, I you know, learned early on that um, you can't just talk about medical systems as if they have a corner on the truth. Um, yes. All of these practices come in the context of large political and cultural contexts. And, and so understanding what the political dynamics are of medical knowledge and how truth is monopolized uh, in one way or another became early on one of my commitments. And it's been kind of a thread throughout all of the work that I've done. And that is Dr. Vincent Adams, and also on the phone with me is Dr. Michelle Perro, both co-authors of a new book, What's Making Our Children Sick, How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness, and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. That book can be found on Amazon and, of course, Chelsea Green. This is an organic conversation. I am Helga Helberg. And... Michelle, when we talk about an epidemic of chronic childhood illnesses, what exactly are the types of diseases and disorders that you are seeing um, that are on the rise and why? Sure, Helga. The, um, the range of illness now affecting our children is vast. And so much so that I do a talk now called Sick is the New Normal because so many kids have chronic issues that parents aren't even identifying them as having an illness, such as food allergies, eczema, environmental allergies, ADHD. So, but if you look at it statistically, because who doesn't want to talk to a doctor and get some stats, right? People want numbers. So what are we seeing? There is about 40% of American children now have food allergies, and those are the severe ones. And if you couple the less intense allergies or food intolerances, the numbers rise significantly. If you look at autism, or what we call autistic spectrum disorder, which when I was in training back in the Stone Ages was one in 10,000 children, is now one in 43 boys, one in 68 kids. By definition, that's an epidemic. So this falls under the category of neurocognitive dysfunction, mm -hmm. which should concern any, any pediatrician, any parent, any educator. And then additionally, we have endocrine disorders such as diabetes, obesity. Obesity now affects 20%, and it's probably closer to 25% of American children. And don't forget common disorders like asthma, which is now being re-looked at as an autoimmune disorder, affecting one in eight American kids and one in six African-American children. And I looked at the data recently on Latino children because of their proximity to areas that are sprayed, and I didn't see any great recent data on Latino children and asthma, but it's also extremely high. And so then if you then go down to, it's as if that's not bad enough, autoimmunity. And where autoimmunity 
autoimmune diseases were essentially unheard of 20 years ago in small children. It is not uncommon to have an 18-month-old with inflammatory bowel disease, such as ulcerative colitis now, or a 9-year-old boy with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. I had quite a few unheard of with boys having autoimmune thyroid disease in the past. So it's vast. It's across multiple systems. It's affecting both sexes, and it, and it m- much of it begins with the gut, but not all of it, but we always focus in as integrative practitioners with the gut. So that, to lay, give you a good lay of the land, goes, do I create the color palette for you um, on, on what's happening from a health perspective? And what have you found in your research as to what, what do you link it to, or what, even if you may not have been able to prove it yet, but what is the clear scientific indicator, and what are you using in your practice to address that with, with results? Mm-hmm. So be, you know, be clear, Helga, there's so many things that our kids are exposed to now right, that, are, that cause uh, disability and uh, morbidity and, and hopefully not mortality. Everything, well, we look at and Dr. Adams and I, Vincent and I, we've looked at food and, and GM food as well as pesticides, particularly glyphosate. However, there are plastics and there are flame retardants and there are EMFs and there are heavy metals and such as lead in our water and in certain parts of the country. And we have other toxicants that are, you know, from the carpets in schools and the certain glues they use to various solvents. So we focus in on one of the most common denominators is what kids do. They eat and they eat a lot. And kids might eat four, five, six meals a day. And the younger the child, the more frequently they eat. But because of their low weight, they metabolize and take up food in a different way than we do. And they require more food for their size. They have a higher metabolic rate. Their turnover is quickly. When you couple that with their ability to clear toxicants and toxins from their little bodies, they're not as effective as we are. And we can go into some of this in more depth. But that gives you an idea that kids eat a lot. Food has to be looked at primarily. What are we feeding ourselves? Not only is it a source of micronutrients, macronutrients, fiber, and food for our microbiome, which Vincent and I can get into. So it's the food and the water is key to health. So did I answer, I think, you know, we we talked a little bit about that. Perfectly, yes. Yes? Yes. Unfortunately, in a way, I wish you would say there's nothing to report on. But yes, you did brilliantly. Thank you. Uh, Vincent, do you want to add to that? Oh, yeah, uh, sure. I mean, I think that it's really important for people to, to hear that, you know, we're not making in this book, uh, you know, a grand claim about food being the source of all problems. You know, there are many things that make children sick. There are genetic and biological predispositions. There's contracting viruses and bacterial pathogens. Um, there's, as Michelle mentioned, the exposure to many toxicants in the built environment from the walls and computer technologies that we use and the phones we use all the way to the lotions and and Mm. the skin products that we use. Um, But we do think food is a major player, and that's the one we really hone in on. And I would add that, and Michelle can speak to this better than I can, but there are these models of pathogenesis. And again, it's not a grand narrative, but it starts to explain some of the relationships between food and chronic disorders like this that have a slow build over a long period of time rather than being acute and treatable with antibiotics, for instance. And these are models of health that aren't really used widely in the standard clinical guidelines now, but really are starting to get more purchased as more research is done on them. Uh, One of these is what uh, is referred to as leaky gut. Well, first of all, there's the presence of the microbiome, which is all new and all interesting, and everyone's compelled, you know, everyone's looking at it and trying to get as much research on it as possible now. And it is a key, obviously, to the relationship between what we put in our mouths and, and then try to digest and the health that we get from that food, the nutrition that we get from that food. Uh, so that's a big uh, new thing that's very important. But there's also this idea of leaky gut when the gut isn't digesting properly mm-hmm. because it's been compromised for one reason or another by either its own physiological um, incursions against its own physiology or because of the microbiome being disrupted. Um, there's also this concept of dysbiosis, which is an imbalance of healthy to unhealthy gut bacteria. And then there is the model that links those two problems to the problem of chronic immune stimulation that is for instance, overstimulating the immune response, but it is a poor-functioning immune system response. Um, and so that that's kind of the core inner 
biology that is being proposed in this book and by a lot of other integrative pediatricians and doctors um, about how to link food and particularly food that have toxicants in it to poor health. Incredible. And we do want to dive into what the second part of the book, uh, what parents and doctors can do about it. That book is what's making our children sick, how industrial food is causing an epidemic of chronic illness. And the authors, Dr. Michelle Perro and Dr. Vincent Adams, are guests on An Organic Conversation with me here today. Both of you, please stay on the line. Um, make sure you don't drop. This is one of the most important conversations we could have. And we will honor our underwriters and be right back with so much more. Again, this is an organic conversation, and I'm Helga Helberg. This show is brought to you by Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. And by Utterly, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot C-O. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Children's health, the consequences of industrial food production. That's our topic. And we're speaking with the authors of a new book, Dr. Michelle Perro and Dr. Vincent Adams, both joining us from the San Francisco Bay Area. Their book is called What's Making Our Children Sick, How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. That book is available on Amazon and even better, Chelsea Green. Right before the break, Vincent, you were talking about all the areas that the world of chemicals, let's just call it that, from glues, schools, carpets, uh, water, is meeting our children and having an impact at least to whatever degree exactly single responsibility. Um, have you looked at that? I want to start with you as in Can you identify a culprit? You mentioned GMOs, and yes, it's interesting that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, says that um, GMO foods are basically equivalent to non-GMO foods, and yet the patent uh, office in the U.S. says, no, they are so radically different that you get to patent them. But that's only as a side note, because GMOs are only one of the entire world of altered foods and altered environments that we are exposed to. Can you point to uh, a culprit or how do you see the, the greatest impact of, of that world of chemicals with the diseases and conditions that you mentioned before? It's important to note, our book, we, in our book, we go very, uh, in a superficial way, into the other toxic chemicals that are out there, including some of the more toxic pesticides that are being used. But the people who are really expert on that, I would say, just to give a plug to my university colleagues, are the folks at the Environmental Health Institute, Tracy Woodruff and a team of researchers and folks like Brenda Eskenazi at Berkeley, who've really been looking at those impacts on reproductive health in particular. Mm -hmm. 
and and showing that there are really serious things to be worried about. In our book, we really wanted to focus in on just one pathway of toxicity, which is through food, and in, in that category, on only on two specific kinds of genetic modifications in the foods that are the most pervasive, therefore likely to be the most harmful. Mm-hmm. But there are many different kinds of genetic modifications that yes. are out there and used right now. And the only ones that we were really interested on, and it might be uh, already familiar to many of your listeners, but would you like me to go through what these two are? Absolutely, that yes, we focus please. On? Okay, yes. so the first one is the Roundup Ready crops, soy, corn, canola, sugar beet. Those are the Roundup Ready crops are the first category that we're worried about. And these are crops that are genetically designed to be used with the uh, pesticide called Roundup that has an active ingredient called glyphosate. glyphosate. Mm-hmm. So these crops are designed to turn the, um, these crops are designed to withstand the spraying of this pesticide. The second type is, is what's called BT crops. And these are crops that have been genetically modified to contain a protein that will serve as a pesticide, um, an, an insecticide. That means it will kill any animal that eats any part of that plant. So these crops are designed to be pesticides in their own right. And now, B- the first kind... And just, mm-hmm. to, just to say, BT is bacteria, thuringiensis, um, already worked into the plant, as you just said, just for our listeners yes. to add to that. And but please go and on. Wait, and yes, hold on one second. Yes. And just for insects, they were not designed for all animals, but just insects, and yes. certain types of insects. Mm-hmm. Right, certain okay. types of insect pests. That's right, and also people will will know that you know that 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 Bacillus has been used by organic farmers even right on the outside of the plant, and when it's washed off, it's pretty much eliminated. But when it's built into the plant, then it's spread. It's expressed in every single cell in the plant. So it's important to know that these genetic modifications emerged at a time in the U.S. agricultural industry when. People were trying to come up with alternatives to more horrendous chemicals like DDT. The idea behind the Roundup Ready crops was that it was assumed that humans were not going to be hurt by this pesticide that uses glyphosate because glyphosate has its impact on a cellular pathway that's found in plants called the shikimate pathway. The, the thing is, we now know that our microbes in our microbiome do have this pathway. So for sure they're being impacted by the ingestion of glyphosate. And it's important to keep in mind that glyphosate in the U.S. alone has gone up 240-fold over the last decade alone, partly because of increased weed resistance to this uh, genetic modification plant, genetically modified plant. That is, we have to use more and more glyphosate. We're also now having to use more toxic chemicals than just Roundup in order to kill the, the weed pests. The second one, the BT, was thought to be safe for humans because it was assumed that it would only be activated in the pH, the low pH of the insect um, gut, and that humans would, would not have this effect. But we now know that those proteins, the BT proteins, are actually pre-activated in the crops that they're grown in. And so we, we don't real we have some studies of, we have studies of, that show there are potential risks from the transgenic process itself potential risks from the proteins that are produced from these genetic modifications, and studies that show there's risks from the pesticides that are used with them. The thing is, those are almost all debated, as you probably know. Yes. Michelle, do you want to add to that? Yeah, the, a few things. Um, just just regarding the a quick thing on the, P, the BT and the insect gut, just for you know the etymologists out there, it's the high pH of the insect tummies. Just a quick correction there. Oh, sorry. We, no, pH. no, no, it's absolutely fine. And, you know, I, I've wondered about these genetic modification processes and whether, what is it, the process of GM itself, either what the two processes that Vincent went into so clearly, or the combination of both. When I look at that BT literature to see if there's been any human studies on the toxic effects of humans on BT and whether what industry reports is true, there were only two human studies, and one was out of Montreal, and where they looked and they found BT toxin floating in moms and fetuses, not broken down. So this idea that it doesn't get into our bloodstream is not quite right. Toxic effect, unclear. The only other, one more human study I found was looking at the effect of BT toxin on um, human kidney cells. And it was shown to be toxic to embryonic kidney cells, you know, um, before they're mature. Mm-hmm. So... 
you know, when things pop up that are abnormal in science, let's say, you know, we want to bring a new drug in and the FDA has to approve it. And when you find abnormalities, you hold the production and you, and you study it further. But that does not seem to happen in terms of the genetic modification process. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's an, it was a fairly unregulated industry. It was declared that it's equivalent to, to regular food. And that was that, right? I mean, still, it's a, it seems like it's a huge human life trial. And we are still learning now with your work, especially 10 years, 20 years later, that they, there could be or should be a great cause of concern. Is that an overstatement? Not at all, Helga. Actually, the way I look at this is I believe, especially looking at children, but this is relevant to adults, our animal companions, you name it, that we're all in a state, unless we're eating fully organic, and I don't know many people who are able to accomplish that in this day and age, eating fully organic, it's tough, that we're all in a state of chronic toxicity. Low-grade chronic poisoning is how you might want to have your listeners listen to it. And there might be some of us out there who can tolerate this better than others, either genetically, epigenetically, in terms of other supplements we might take. But I can tell you from based on my clinical work, and I've cheated thousands of kids at this point. I've been at, at this particular issue for 20 years, you know, almost 37 years as a pediatrician, that they are, our children are not tolerating it. And we can, you know, I can, we can go into factors why that is, but we have a generation now of chronically low-grade toxic kids. And when you compare our children to other children from other countries, you, you find that we're, in America, we're doing much worse in terms of our health, in terms of what we spend on our health, in terms of neonatal outcomes, in terms of other, ind other countries at our industrial level that we are faring at the bottom. So something is not going right here. So again, as you mentioned previously, precautionary principle, we need to hold everything And look at what's happening. And we do want to go into um, what, how are you treating those children right now? And with that, of course, what are the best practices you would recommend to any parent or doctor listening to this show? We are speaking with Dr. Michelle Perro and Dr. Vincent Adams, the co-authors of What's Making Our Children Sick, How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. Again, available on Amazon and ChelseaGreen.com. In this hour, often organic conversation, children's health, the consequences of industrial food production. Michelle, how do you treat a child that comes to you that obviously has some environmental trigger activated uh, impact? What do you do? How do you approach that? Sure. And as you know, and every, every kid is an individual, right? You might have a family of three children and only one is sick and the other two are fine, eating yes. the same diets, living in the same home. So each kid is approached differently. But there are guidelines that parents can follow. So what I'd like to say to our families is, and let's take a kid who has some health issues, not just a well kid who you want to keep well as preventative medicine, but there are challenges and you want to see what you can do. Hopefully, you're able to align yourself with an integrative practitioner. It can be a naturopath. It could be a health coach. It can be a, a holistic nutritionist like yourself. There are many types of practitioners who do what we do, functional medicine docs, etc. So if you can get aboard with one of those folks, fabulous. But for any reason, if you cannot, there are changes you can make at home that can definitely help your child as well as the family. So the first thing I say is stop the processed foods. Farm to table as much as you can. Everyone back in the kitchen, not just mom. This is not mom's job, people. So everyone's got to get cooking and teach little kids how to cook. Kids love knives. You can teach kids as young as you know, six, seven years old how to handle a not very sharp knife and cut some veggies with you know, mom and dad in the kitchen. If they can, to so switch to organic food. And I want to recommend that people dispel this myth that organic food is related to kind of elitist, you know, hippy-dippy eaters. And that is, I think, a very good campaign by agribusiness. I don't think that's the way it should be. Conventional food should be organic. We should switch that labeling around. And, of course, it would be great if, you know, our government supported organic growers and not conventionally grown crops, but that's another conversation, Helga. <laughs> and we, we have those a lot <laughs> on this show. But, yes, so, go on, you know, great. So we can, we can do that. If they parents cannot do that for any reason, I say, can you just don't eat GMO? And soy, corn, canola, get off of that stuff. And as well as um, alfalfa, our livestock are fed a genetically modified alfalfa. And if they can avoid that, that'd be great. And if they do buy pesticide-containing produce, which is not GM, let's say lettuce, 
to rinse it off thoroughly. So we're trying to decrease the toxic or what we call allostatic load that these kids are exposed to. If they can combine that with a, a very simple uh, water filter, you know, they can get a very simple one, pure, Brita, there are many types out there. And so you reduce further the toxic load. Then it is just, so that's what we call um, the internal milieu. And if you can reduce the toxic load from the external milieu, like taking shoes off at the door or stopping various potions and lotions and decreasing the toxic exposure externally because we have a huge dermal absorption of toxins and toxicants as well. Mm. The skin is very effective of, of absorbing various chemicals in our bodies. Then we're giving our kids a chance for their bodies to innately do what they know how to do, which is heal themselves. So those are very simple things that I think most people can try at home. Vincent, um, do you have something to add? Sure. I mean, I think that from my perspective and working on this book with Michelle, what I came to decide is that, the, you know, this is not just an individual decision-making problem. This isn't just about choices people make in the home. I actually see this as a public health problem that's you know, operating on a much larger scale, and it requires action on all fronts. And it's an environmental issue as well. So in the book, we spend some time talking about this model of what we call eco-medicine, um, as a way of rethinking the medical paradigm, because this isn't just about activism on the front of keeping the environment clean and keeping our food safe. It's also about thinking about medicine in a whole new way. Um, and so I, I would add, you know, Michelle is great at giving this advice about what you can do in your home, what you can do. But I also, I, I have to say, witnessing her in her practice was a real eye-opener for me, um, just seeing the kinds of tools that she was using to get at the sources of toxicity in these kids. So blood tests, urine tests, microbiome tests, uh, figuring out what foods they were having a reaction to, not just uh, allergic reaction, but sensitivity reactions. And these, again, these are not generally used in, in the regular pediatrician's office. And so that, to me, is, was a, an insight into a kind of practice that really looks at the relationships between one's environment or the ecosystem that one lives in, and the health of the inside of the body and how it you know, comes out on the outside of the body. So we, we talk about this as a, as a movement to try to think about how do we reconsider the medical model in a way that connects the health of the soil to the health of the gut. So it's a much bigger thing than just individual action, but individual action is certainly important. And I love that you're bridging that because it is a, it is a social topic, really. When you talk about the microbiome, since this was mentioned several times, and for some listeners that might, might still be the first time they're hearing this, uh, how would you describe that best the, as the world of bacteria and their relationship in your, in your overall gut and digestive system? What's the... Right, so, yeah, sure. These, the microbiome is an organ it's now so it's such a well-studied composition of who we are. We are mostly microbial, Helga. Our, it varies from anywhere. We have microbial cells anywhere from one to one to one to ten um, in our body. So most of us are mostly microbial. As a matter of fact, our mitochondria, which are the little energy batteries in our cells, were probably once bacteria that were enveloped in our own systems. Yeah, it's fair to say that the microbes own us, right? We our microbes are are smart. You know what we what we say. What I tell my patients is, love your microbiome, because that microbiome is your first line of detoxification. Those organisms. <laughs> so having this healthy diversity and robust community of organisms is key for detox. Key for making vitamins such as vitamin K and folate. It's key for also producing certain neurotransmitters or the chemicals that run your brain. Mm -hmm. And so when their pathways are shut down because of glyphosate and the shikimate pathway that, that Vincent was talking about earlier, they may not be able to help um, you make these neurotransmitters from certain amino acids called aromatic amino acids. Yes, and we had shows on actually food and depression on this uh, on the show, uh, topics, and um, yeah, absolutely, uh, completely interconnected, right? What we eat is us on so many levels. Food is information, Helga, just data for your body. And so this data, what you eat, whether it's a carnivore diet or, or a vegetarian diet, will not only dictate your microbiome, but it will shape the microbiome. Mm -hmm. And the microbiome can be reshapen within two to three days mm -hmm. to help us do the processes that our bodies need to do. Yes. So we only have 25,000 genes. We have way fewer than rodents and chimps. 
for example. But what we do have are this ability, this microbiome, to impact our biologic function and enhance what we do. So we're better what we do because of our robust and hopefully diversified microbiome. Vincent. So I was just going to add that for for people who are new to the concept of the microbiome, that we only are interested in the gut microbiome. We've been talking about the gut microbiome, but the microbes live all over the body. They're in the the nasal passages. They're on the surface of the skin. So there are many microbiomes that we need to talk about. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh What is the, the call to action? So healthier food, healthier water, eat organic if you can, farm to table, no processed, and then within three, four days... Um, somebody can at least heavily impact their microbiome and their overall gut flora and and benefit from that immediately. But you you are mentioning, Vincent, this, this call to action on a social level. Um, are you planning a book tour, a campaign? What What's the next step with this important book that you wrote? Uh, we're definitely on the road with it already. We have book talks uh, around California. We've got a plan for a book talk in England. We've been giving lots of radio shows. I have shadowed Michelle. We've gone to Sacramento. Uh, she's much more involved in the frontline activism in the offices of government than I am. But um, my particular interest is in getting it into the hands of medical students so that the um, what I call the reluctant constituencies mm-hmm. in this debate yes. can uh, kind of open their minds up a little bit and rethink the, the state of the problem. Because as you know, if you go to the website, um, and the science websites, you know, it's very easy to get confused very quickly yes. about what the truth is on these things. So uh, that's that's my um, approach. Great. Uh, all all hands on deck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> every, every possible avenue. <laughs> Michelle, any last words from you? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Vincent. And uh, of course, um, I'm also uh, involved. Um, I help. I'm an executive director of a website, GMOScience.org. And what we're trying to do there is bring the science, the most current cogent science that we can, and look at this relationship between GM food, associated pesticides, and the effect particularly on health. And there's no one really doing that out there, and so we have a great website. But I also agree, because people can affect their legislators. We are in Sacramento. There are some legislators looking to pick up a bill that would hopefully be looked at in mid-February to ban the use of herbicides, not just glyphosate, because there are another other nasty herbicides that affect children's health mm-hmm. that can be sprayed. We don't want to bring more toxic stuff in there. And we want to stop the herbicide usage on children's schools, playgrounds, daycare centers, etc. So there's a bill hopefully coming up, and people need to get involved and let the legislators know that they're not okay with this. So yes, there is a call for action. Of course, with our pocketbooks and where we spend our money, absolutely, because we, right, the spending dictates what companies will make for us. Yes. But again, at the legislative uh, level to protect our children at schools. And then just for a plug for a group of colleagues of mine called Conscious Kitchen, working on bringing a organic food to children's schools. And they started in Marin City here in uh, Northern California at a, a school where some kids eat three meals a day. And not only that, paired with Vincennes University, UCSF, they're studying the effects of changing children's diets to organic. And within four weeks of time, they're already seeing significant changes. So we're collecting data. So what we need are these forward types of studies looking at the effects of these food changes on our children's health. And as you know, food studies are very difficult to do and to control what people eat. So organizations, institutions are a great way to do that and making these changes and seeing the effect of uh, health and preliminarily having great results already where kids and teachers are doing better with less issues, less health issues, less behavioral issues, etc. So I say, again, as Vincent said, all hands on deck. We fight in the home. We fight at the state government and do what we can globally as, you know, with our, we're talking all the time on our listservs with colleagues in the UK, with colleagues in South Africa, with colleagues in Argentina. So we create a global dialogue as well. Beautiful, working with them to create the world we actually want. That is Dr. Michelle Perro and Dr. Vincent Adams, the co-authors of What's Making Our Children Sick, How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness, and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. 
beautiful work. Thank you so much for making the time. Uh, I feel guilty for taking you off that campaign trail path, but <laughs> hopefully an organic conversation is helping to spread the word of your critical, critical work. And I already know we'll have you back in the future to, to give us another update. Thank you so much for what you do. Delightful. Thank you, Helga. Appreciate being here. <laughs> thank you. Yes, thank you for having us. Appreciate Pleasure. It. Thank you. Have you back soon. Take care. Right. Bye now. Bye. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And how apropos we are staying with the topic of healthy food. Here is what's in season. And as every week, we're speaking with the team at Earl's Organic really the experts of what's going on in the retail aisle on the shelf so that we can make the best purchases, what to buy, how to buy it, how to store it, and what to do with it. It's not Earl this week, though. It's one of his experts, buyers, who has been on the show many times, uh, hopefully the voice of Anthony Mirishata. Anthony, do we have you? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> Hello. Oh, great. Um, we had some severe weather or events, weather events. We had fire and we had mudslides. Kind of out of the extraordinary, we had the worst fires, of course, in Northern California and Southern California last fall in the history of the state. And now heavy rains followed um, by extreme mudslides. And they did did quite an interruption of, of produce. Can you, can you uh, tell us what happened? You know, uh, us here in San Francisco, we, we were even uh, kind of smoked out, so to speak, for about a week or, you know, upwards of two weeks when the, the fires were happening in Sonoma, which were, you know, uh, 40 miles north of, of San Francisco. Yes. So um, not much agriculturally was, uh, was set back there other than a lot of vineyards for grapes and, and winemaking. And then shortly af after that, and, you know, once we were kind of out of that uh, fire, then the fires uh, down in Southern California started with the with the heavy winds and the Santa Ana winds just relentless um, off the coast, really really spreading that fire down south. When you say you you were smoked out for two weeks, and yet agricultural crops really weren't that much affected, other than heavily wine, how did it affect uh, Earl's Organics in in terms of produce? In terms of produce, when when the fires were down south, um, uh, there's all of these little pieces, you know, that, that most people don't ever think about when it comes to agriculture and um, even just the, the fact that the regions that weren't affected directly by the fires, they were still affected indirectly by the heavy smoke, which, as you can imagine, being out in, in fields trying to harvest or plant or transplant, when the smoke is that bad, uh, even when you're wearing uh, some kind of uh, mouth protection or, or a uh -huh. face mask. Yes. The the smokes were so and the smoke was so intense that the the workers could not even be in the fields for, you know, it, it went on from two, three, four, five, six days where wow. people were trying to get out in the morning before the smoke picked up or if the wind did turn away from the fields for a couple hours, get out there and do some harvesting, but it really uh, delayed things, you know, for for quite a few days uh, just because of the smoke. Um, being in the fields and not allowing people to get out there and, and do their job. Incredible. And instead of getting produce, actually Earl's shipped produce, right? Didn't you have an entire uh, campaign to bring food to shelters and to, like, as a, Earl became a kind of first or second responder? Absolutely. No, we were, uh, that, that was when the fires were up in Sonoma. We, we actually sent over a full uh, tractor trailer, uh, 20 plus pallets of um, various commodities up into Sonoma County to the Redwood Empire Food Bank there. We worked closely with them and, and made sure we got food to people and families in need and then also the first responders. Yeah, we, we were, uh, you know, very happy to help and, and work with our vendor partners and uh, really get food up there when it was needed. Wow. Yes, thank you for doing that. Um, and how about the mudslides? Uh, which areas were affected? It was kind of something that almost didn't make it into the news and yet pretty big impact because it was such a strategic place where it happened, right? Absolutely. So it, it was um, in the community or town of Montecito, um, which is outside of Santa Barbara, was, was one of the heavily hit areas with the mudslides. You know, they were directly affected, of course, and it was it 
such a tragic happening, but also the, the mudslide ran uh, directly across uh, 101, most extensive you know, coastal route from Los Angeles uh, into points north, including San Francisco. Yes. So Los Angeles is a major hub for produce. Now that we're in the winter season coming out of Mexico, things are often, you know, make a stop in Los Angeles before coming to San Francisco. The harbor too, all, right, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and then also the our small uh, family farmers around those regions yes. and, and vendor partners in Southern California that, uh, we you know, we just could not get trucks on the road that would uh, they would attempt to, you know, bear the uh, the mudslide and the road closures. Mm-hmm. So um, there, we we had to change gears a little bit and source product from other places. Look more towards imports for those times. Um, and, and you know the road remained closed. Uh, certain parts of the road remained closed for you know almost two weeks. Yeah. So just a really good reminder that when we buy local, when we support local production. Uh, they are part of the fabric of community, of local jobs, uh, of you know local employment, uh, neighbors. So when we buy as locally as we can, and certainly organic, sustainable, domestically, uh, we are actually contributing to the to those times too, right? We we don't do it as a first responder in that moment of crisis, but we are kind of preparing for the crisis, or we can be there helping them afterwards if we keep buying as locally as possible uh, to compensate for any kind of weather event or tragedy that might happen. And a, a great reminder just to know how sensitive around weather, agriculture in general, and particularly sustainable agriculture is. Yes, absolutely. That you know, that's a huge part of it, and and even for me being here day day to day, um, just trying to be mindful of every single step uh, and everything it really takes to to get any one of those you know delicious produce items from from the field to your table. Yeah, thank you, thank you for for your role. Uh, not just to, you know, we can take things for granted, even though we are excited about it and celebrating. Earth's Organic here on the radio every week. And of course, we all eat organic who are part of the show and your team. And yet we take the flow of organic produce and the fairly robust organic agriculture system in California. I don't want to say for granted, but you know, it, it is there now and it won't go away. And yet it is by no means are we ever safe in that regard of uh, ever taking it for granted. This is an ongoing effort. And thank you so much for being that bridge for us, for bringing that produce to us, for being part of the community, for helping in this case, in this fire emergency in Northern California and uh, somehow making it work, still somehow making it work, even with the mudslides to, to keep the farmers going and in business and us supplied with healthy organic produce. Wonderful job. Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you for allowing me to, to speak on, on those points. And thanks all the listeners out there, you know, for, for all of the support. You know, we, we appreciate it. Yes, that's Anthony Mirashata, one of the key buyers at Earl's Organic Produce, uh, the expert buyer of organic, only organic fruits and vegetables uh, in, Cal- in San Francisco, throughout Northern California and beyond. Anthony, we'll have you back soon. Thanks for all your work. Excellent. Thank you. Hoka. Pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then.